Today's gospel lesson is from the fifth chapter of Matthew, verses 38 through 48. And this morning I will be reading from the message translation by Reverend Eugene Peterson. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish, to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. You're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your perfect God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way our perfect God lives toward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. How's everyone doing today? All right? Good. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Micah Coleman Campbell. I am the seminary intern here at Chatham United Methodist Church. I go to Drew Seminary just down the road here to earn my Master of Divinity, and I am in my final semester. Uh, so I graduate this spring, praise God. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to start by thanking Elizabeth again for her story this morning. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, I didn't know this, but it connects with my sermon pretty well. So I'm thankful for the Spirit's work in that and for your work too. A few days ago, I was talking to my fiance, Kieran, who some of you have met, about today's passage. And we've got in the habit of doing this before I preach because she sees things in the scripture that I miss. And she, this time she informed me that there's an exception to today's commandments that I wasn't aware about. Uh, I never learned about it growing up on the West Coast. But apparently, Jesus calls us to love everyone, including our enemies, unless, of course, they're fans of New England area sports teams. <laughs> I wasn't aware of this rule, but I'm... Glad I know better now, I'll stop making friends with those people. But I digress. We have lots to get to, so let's get right to the point. Let's get right to the end. In Matthew 5:48, to sum up the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his followers to be perfect. Perfect. Just as our loving Father in heaven is perfect, which sounds easy enough, right? Now, the message translation that Tom used today doesn't actually use that language perfect, 
But I asked him to, to keep it in because, well, one, because a lot of translations use it, and so when you confront it, I want to talk about that. But also because the word perfect is really important to understanding some of what makes Methodism distinct. And I thought in a room full of Methodists, we might be interested in that. This call from Jesus to be perfect was really important to John Wesley, the guy who started what is now Methodism or United Methodism. And Wesley constantly urged his followers towards what's called Christian perfection, which sounds weird and also a little bit ridiculous because obviously no one's perfect. But it makes more sense if we realize that what he meant by perfect isn't usually what we think of when we think of perfect. I think that Wesley saw that in the Greek, the word here translated as perfect, teleos, is meant in the sense that something is complete or finished. And for Wesley, that made a ton of sense because the way he saw things, our lives as followers of God, is to more and more align our will and our actions with Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, as disciples of Christ, we are day by day trying to think and act more like Jesus. Uh, some of you may remember the uh, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do movement from the 90s? Well, Wesley was saying it before it was cool. But Wesley uh, would even simplify it further because sometimes in our modern day context it's hard to know like what Jesus would do, how would Jesus handle road rage or the internet. And he would say to simplify it by identifying the loving thing. Above all else we are called to love God and neighbor and in fact that is our life goal in a sense. It's our purpose to love. So when Wesley sees Jesus calling us to be perfect or complete here in Matthew 5:48, he sees Jesus calling us to fulfill our purpose, our loving purpose, to move toward a place where we are completely motivated by love in all things. And now that doesn't mean we would ever get to a place where we avoid mistakes or accidents. Human ignorance and frailty will still cause us to accidentally hurt others and unknowingly make mistakes. Wesley didn't think we could get to that sort of perfect. But he did believe that we could, through a lot of hard work and a lot of help from God, that's important, we could get to a place where we are perfectly and completely motivated by love and nothing else. But even with this change of definition, Wesley didn't even think that most of us would get to that sort of perfect, that only a few handful of saints ever really had, maybe like a, a Mother Teresa type. But that we should still try for perfection because trying and coming up short is still better than not trying at all. And I want to be clear too, we do this not in order to earn our salvation or earn God's love. That's stuff we don't earn. We do it because we're convinced that love is the most amazing and awesome thing on this earth and we want to share it. So, when someone asks you, what do United Methodists believe? Now you have one thing you can tell them. You can tell them that we believe that our primary goal in life is to, with God's help, love God and neighbor more and more, better and better, day by day, until we are completely, perfectly motivated by love. Does that more or less make sense? Well, let's see how that changes how we think of today's passage. We'll start with 
Uh, verse 42, for example, which in the NRSV, uh, which is what um, some of your Bibles are in there, says, give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. And then quick poll. By a show of hands, who here gives to everyone who begs from them? Yeah, me neither. Not even close. So when I hear this commandment, and I know that I want to be completely motivated by love, and I'm being honest with myself, I know I have a lot of hard work to do. I certainly could be more charitable. Yet, I'm not saying that we need to take the commandment as a literal absolute every time in order to be faithful to it. For instance, if someone on the street asks for some money from you, but you decide not to give to that person, for example, because you think that that money could be spent or put to better use at a nonprofit organization, that's still an act motivated from love, and so I think it's still an act that's faithful to Jesus' response. We just, again, want to be honest with ourselves and make sure that that is indeed why we aren't giving to others and not for some less loving reason. So if we think about perfection as being motivated by love, we can be faithful to Christ's commandments with nuance and understanding of the complexities of each individual context. Still with me? All right, we're going to do, we'll, take, we'll do one more example of this, how this might play out in today's scripture. Turn the other cheek, which is a phrase we hear a lot. And this can be a dangerous one, actually, to apply literally in every single situation. As Christians, we want to be nonviolent, and we want to take that call seriously. All of us need to check our impulse for revenge when someone strikes us or hurts us. And when we are completely motivated by love, we will refuse to meet violence with violence where others would strike back. But, and this is a very important but, if we are completely, perfectly motivated by love, we will not always take turn the other cheek literally. Those who have been abused by a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or family member are often led to believe that the loving thing to do is to silently bear the beatings. If you are regularly abused, you may be telling yourself that you, if you are patient, quiet, and understanding, maybe someday they'll stop, or maybe someday they'll change but I want you to listen to me. If they're going to change, they're almost definitely going to need professional help. It can't come from you. For their sake and for yours, I'm asking you to seek help. It is a loving thing to do. And you may think for that matter that you are the only one that your loved one is hurting, but you, in fact, don't actually know that. There may be others that are silently bearing the violence, too. For their sake and for yours, please seek help. It is a loving thing to do. But man, if it isn't difficult, I, I get that. I know that I 
am asking you to, to do something difficult, very beyond difficult. I know that you know better than me the circumstances of your situation. I know that they are complex. Honestly, I probably wouldn't even ask it of you if I didn't think that your very life could be at stake. But I do. And so I'm asking as someone who cares about you to seek help. It is a loving thing to do. Sometimes when you preach, you take detours, uh, worthwhile detours, but ones that bring you to a point that's hard to segue back from. This is one of those moments. So I'm going to transition back to the point I was trying to make, and I'm ask you all to pretend that that wasn't the worst transition you've ever heard. Let's recap where we are so far. Jesus tells us to be perfect, and John Wesley helps us understand that to mean that everything we do should be motivated by love. And this understanding, in turn, helps us to take seriously the bold commandments of Jesus, but to apply them with nuance and understanding specific to each context. Which brings us to the question, how do we get there? If we are compelled by Christ's call to be perfect and want to completely be motivated by love, how do we do it? Or at least, how do we even start to work towards that lofty goal? I think we start by naming the primary obstacle. And the primary obstacle isn't, I don't believe, that we aren't loving enough. I think we have sufficient amount of love in our hearts. The primary obstacle, I think, is that we are afraid more than we probably realize. Look again at all that Jesus asks of us today. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemy. Go the extra mile. Give to everyone who asks of you. Each one of these commandments asks us to risk something. If you love an enemy, there's a chance the enemy may hurt and hate you all the same. If you give to everyone who asks of you, that's less money for your family, that's less security for you, that's a more frightening future. These commandments are audacious not in just the extraordinary amount of love they ask of us, but also in the significant amount of risk. And that's scary. If you sometimes struggle to give charitably to some person or cause because you're afraid of how it'll affect your personal budget, you're probably right to feel that fear. Jesus isn't promising here that if we give generously, God's going to shower us with wealth and riches. God doesn't operate that way. It says in the text today that God will, or that it, the sun rises and the rains fall on both the righteous and the wicked. Jesus is asking us to give generously without expectation of return. And that should be a little scary. If loving your enemies scares you, whether your enemies are bullies or terrorists or Red Sox fans, oh, I was going to say you're right to be afraid of that too, but let's just say that some enemies are more justifiable to be afraid of than others. But if, an enemy, if your enemy is a true enemy, 
Loving them should scare you. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knows that, and he asks us to do it all the same. Are we up for it? God calls us to a faith that's not just loving, but risky, too. Now, last month, I went on a class trip to El Salvador to learn about the country's history, its present reality, and to hear stories from very many Christians who are doing incredible faithful work down there despite some pretty dangerous conditions. And it was an incredible trip. I'm not overstating it when I say it might have been the most incredible trip I've ever been on. But I couldn't possibly tell you all about it today, don't worry. Um, But I will share with you one story. I'll keep it to one. And it's a story told to us by a nun from Jersey City. Sister Peggy O'Neill arrived in El Salvador in the mid-80s, which was about halfway through the country's civil war, which lasted from 79 to 92, and took the lives of of about 80,000 people. And when Sister Peggy arrived, she actually wasn't entirely sure why she was there. She just heard a call from God and followed it. I mean, talk about scary and talk about brave. And though she initially, she didn't even uh, know any Spanish when she arrived. She didn't have any medical skills. But she did have a couple things. She was an excellent driver, and she had a good sense of direction, and both of which she credits to growing up in Jersey. (laughs) And so she learned Spanish as she got there, and she spent her years during the war driving wounded soldiers and civilians to and from medical facilities in the mountainous regions of Suchitoto. Now, about a year or two into her time there, there was a rainy day, and she went to a temporary settlement to visit a woman who had been assaulted. And while she was there, the small community got a signal that the opposing army might be coming in their direction. And by the nature of these signals, they could never say for sure. They might come, they might not. But they decided not to risk it, so the the entire little community gathered together and they all piled into a a flatbed, a long flatbed truck, and they piled in like sardines. And they drove off in the other direction. They didn't get far, though, because the driver misjudged a turn and ran into an embankment with the truck and got it stuck. And immediately, all the people in the truck, Sister Peggy and all the others, they bolted out of the truck and into the tall grasses that were nearby. They left behind everything in that truck. And they knew that if they moved in a group that they'd be easier to capture, so they all scattered in little tiny groups of like two or three. And then they waited in the tall grass to see what would happen. And Sister Peggy, she ended up with two other women. Uh, One woman also had left everything behind, but actually the the third woman was a mother and she had a baby. So she brought uh, the basket or the bassinet and the baby with her too. And they sat and were quiet and waited as the minutes passed and then hours crept by and eventually one by one they all started to fall asleep. And then, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, a cold breeze passes by, waking all three of the women up at once. And the mother decides to take this opportunity to change the diaper of her child. 
So she reaches into the basket and first pulls out a stack of tortillas, sets that aside, and then reaches in and grabs the rags to um, change the diaper. But Sister Peggy, her eyes were on that stack of tortillas. She was starving. Turns out Sister Peggy is a nervous eater, so by this time she was desperate for food. So desperate, in fact, that it, she must have been visibly salivating because the other woman, the third woman, before Sister Peggy says anything, the third woman says, no, 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 no. we can't take any of this food. We don't know how long we're going to be here. And the mother, she has a child. She needs to be strong enough to feed the child and take care of her. We adult women, we couldn't possibly take from a mother and her baby. But the mother, the woman with the stack of tortillas, in an instant, she waves off the other woman and says, no, tonight we share our food and tomorrow we share our hunger. I don't know about you, but that makes me weak at the knees. Did you hear that? Tonight we share our food, tomorrow we share our hunger. That's an act of love and faith if I've ever heard one. I mean, we can debate about whether that was the right call or not to make. I know there are many very loving parents in here who would never risk their child's safety, even to love a neighbor. But who can doubt that that woman wasn't motivated by love? And not just love, brave love. Sometimes we are blessed with the opportunity to love an enemy or give generously without putting at risk our own comfort and security. But there are times when we cannot do both. There are times when we have to make a choice between our security and loving others. There will be times ahead when each one of us will be given a choice to either hold on to what we've got or to let go and say, tonight we share our food, tomorrow we share our hunger. And now that's love so brave that you may be thinking, oh, I could... I could never do that. That's beyond me. Or maybe, maybe just the opposite. Maybe that's love so brave. You think, oh, I want to be like that. I want tonight we share our food, tomorrow we share our hunger to be my personal mantra. Print that on a t-shirt and wear it every day. But how do we do that? How do we get to a place so motivated by love for God and neighbor that we are bravely willing to risk our own peace and stability? As with many things, it probably begins with small steps and practice. We can begin by wading into this radical discipleship little by little, a small act of slightly scary generosity here, a small act of slightly risky love there, and then hope to do a little bit more the next time. And we remember that this is a process, that becoming perfectly, completely motivated by love is a lifelong process. So we don't stress or shame ourselves when we let fear get the best of us. We just recommit and ask God to help us be braver the next time. Neither do we forget that being completely, perfectly motivated by love comes with nuance. Each day we hope to learn from our mistakes so that we might better know how to love in a variety of ways. And in addition, I would offer up one more insight 
from the scripture, and I'll leave you with this. Let's return to Jesus' conclusion. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hear that we are not just called to be perfect, but we are also reminded that our God is perfect too. That God does all things out of love, including making you. God made you with love in order that you might share it. God created you for this very task, to love God and neighbor every day, more by more, little by little, until one day it might become as natural as breathing. May you be reminded anytime you're afraid to love that you were meant for more than comfort and security. You are meant to love boldly, bravely, sometimes risking much. Be emboldened knowing that every time you love bravely, you are stepping into your very life's purpose. And with each step, you move that much closer to completing the journey that God has set before you. Amen.